with every book the same thoughts show up well this is rubbish you, you know this is really boring you know, people are not gonna like this and um, you know I've just learned to expect that's what's gonna happen um, I actually have um, a little word document which is full of all the most critical things that my mind says to me while I'm writing uh, and so I just kind of um, boot that up if it's a really bad day and kind of say, oh, yeah, I've got that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. But just running through the list and seeing that this is all the same old stuff <laughs> my mind's been telling me for 15 years uh, really helps me to unhook from it. That was Russ Harris, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Russ Harris, author of the international best-selling book, The Happiness Trap, and a world-renowned trainer of acceptance and commitment therapy. Russ's background is in medicine and now works in two different yet complementary roles as a therapist and as a coach. We discuss this shift more in the episode. Since 2005, Russ has run over 700 two-day workshops and provided ACT training for almost 50,000 health professionals. He has authored four ACT textbooks and four ACT-based self-help books. His best-known book, The Happiness Trap, has sold over 1 million copies worldwide, with translations into more than 30 languages. Some of the areas we explore in this episode include Russ's early career in medicine and how his own suffering was a catalyst for change, some of the books and ideas that were influential during this transition, Russ's first introduction to ACT and how it led to writing The Happiness Trap, his work with the World Health Organization developing an ACT protocol for individuals in refugee camps, we discuss how pain can be used for growth, the nature of trauma, and the dangers of toxic positivity, and we end by exploring some of Russ's future goals both within ACT and in other areas of his life. Man, this was a good one. I mean, Russ Harris has played such an important role in my life, both personally and for my growth as a therapist. And honestly, I was pretty nervous at the start of the episode, which makes sense because this really matters to me. So I am really excited to share this episode with you and privileged that I had this opportunity. And thank you all for being here and listening to the show. It means a lot to me. If you'd want to support the podcast, you could leave a review, subscribe, or share with a friend. But just being here and listening is enough. So thank you all. And without any further delay, let's jump into the conversation with Dr. Russ Harris. Oh, I'm just curious about you, why you decided to do this podcast in a, a world that's full of podcasts. It's a brave thing to, to do. What motivated you? 
like many things, there's a lot of different levels that I can sort of look at it at. I mean, one is kind of not selfish, but just the opportunity to get to have a conversation with someone like you that I really admire. It would have been pretty hard for me to be able to pitch just you talking to me for an hour, but having a reason to get to have a conversation <laughs> with somebody with a podcast is pretty cool. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> but also, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool that it's connected with a lot of people in the act community and having, there's not many act focused podcasts. So I thought there was a lot of space there to get to have meaningful conversations about it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, you and your work has played and continues to play such an important role in that. So I really appreciate everything you've done and your willingness to be here today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Making room for my embarrassment now. (laughs) I mean, you must, you must, I don't know how much you, you know it directly, explicitly or implicitly, but you must obviously know that you've had a big impact on a lot of people, right? Uh, yeah, look, it's it's nice to hear uh, that. Um, it's uh, I am a bit removed from it, but um, you know, obviously, um, the reason I've been able to do that is because Steve Hayes, the creator of Act, has been so uh, supportive. You know, he's you know so generous with it, and when I uh, wrote the Happiness Trap like 15 years ago i i i'd only just met steve at uh, the first conference i went to and i said you know I'd, I'd love to write a book about this you know and he said oh yeah go for it you know which was and when the book was written he he wrote the forward to it and that's amazing for me a guy who didn't know me from a bar of soap and he's like yeah take this get it out there he's um uh, I, I can't imagine that creators of other models of therapy, let's say, would be uh, that kind of generous and open. Um, so it's um, it, it's been amazing to see uh, how far uh, the, you know ACT has reached out over the last uh, fifteen years. It's astonishing. Mm, yeah, that commitment to the open source model in the community is really is really amazing. Mm. I'm curious about you and your story a bit because I, it's sort of a mystery to me. I know you were in medicine. You sort of, the story of you is like in medicine to having eight books on acts and being really influential. And the, the, the story in between there is a little fuzzy. Would you be willing to share a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I didn't particularly enjoy being a, a doctor, um, I, uh, I guess I was <laughs> the youngest child of, uh, of six children and, uh, my father was a doctor and, um, you know, uh, four of my siblings were doctors. And when I was born, you know, the, the midwife held me up and said, Oh, it's a medical student. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, so I was kind of basically, uh, I'm not sure if the, if the right word, kind of a mixture of brainwashing and coercion, uh, very much pushed into doing medicine to please parents rather than 
because it was what I really wanted to do. And uh, I, I managed to scrape my way through medical school and <laughs> nearly got thrown out. <laughs> I failed uh, every exam in the first two years and just managed to get through on the resits. And then I, 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 when I graduated as a doctor, I just had this sense of, my God, I've done, you know, spent five years of my life working for this. And for what? You know, this, this isn't what I really want to do. But I had no idea what I did want to do. So... I um I thought I know what will solve all my problems. I'll I'll change countries. So I, I I left England and went to Australia and started working as a GP there. And guess what? Changing countries didn't really fix the issue. <laughs> so I was kind of a, a young GP uh, working in Melbourne, which is a very cool place to live. And I, I was miserable, and I couldn't really understand why. It was like, you know, I've got this great job, I've got status, I've got good income, uh, you know, this is meaningful work. But um, I was uh, full of, had a very strong inner critic that I wasn't really that conscious of, but that was just continually beating me up. Uh, very high anxiety, was always worried about my medical abilities, you know, am I missing something? Did I do the wrong thing? Um, and to uh, try to escape my anxiety, I hit upon the very effective method of eating chocolate. Um, so there is a type of Australian chocolate biscuit or cookie, I think you call them over there, um, mm. called a double-coated chocolate Tim Tam. And these, uh, you know, if you imagine an Oreo covered with, you know, very thick chocolate, then that's um, it's about something along that size. And you get nine of these in a packet. And I was eating about five packets a day of these double-coated chocolate Tim Tams uh, when I was at work. Mm-hmm. You know, so just uh, <laughs> when the Tim Tam was in my mouth, it would push the anxiety away. Um, but, of course, once the Tim Tam had gone, the anxiety would come back. So I was massively overweight. I was... Uh, uh, 20 kilograms heavier than I am today. Um, so I'm, I'm 82 kilograms today. I don't know what that is in pounds, um, but it'd be a lot, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think 20 kilograms is about 50 pounds. Um, so, uh, yeah. and, uh, so I was very overweight and, uh, I had high blood pressure and I was in my mid twenties and I was depressed and I was anxious and at times I was suicidal and I started, you know, kind of trying to figure out why am I so miserable and uh, uh, so I started reading self-help books um, which then led to seeing a therapist and as I started getting interested in in the uh, you know in in therapy and self-help I at the same time I started getting very interesting in the psychological aspects of medicine and Hmm. my GP consultations started getting longer and longer and longer. So, you know, from a going from a sort of 10 minute consultation, they gradually went up to 20 to 30 minutes and, you know, it'd be like 25 minutes talking about psychological stuff and then five minutes at the end dealing with the physical stuff. Uh, and I started to realize that I'm in the wrong profession here. Uh, <laughs> so it was a very, very slow uh, realization. Um, and, uh, and eventually I just kind of made the jump. I started training in, in therapy and, um, gradually started putting aside one day a week just to do therapy and then two days a week and three days a week. And eventually I was in this space where I was just doing a three hour shift as a GP once a month. 
and everything else was therapy. And I couldn't let go of that because it's like, if, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not a GP, what am I, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. What am I, you know, then eventually, eventually mm-hmm. I let go of that final shift. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a slow, slow process that really just came out of my own misery and desire to understand, uh, why I was suffering so much and, and that recognition, uh, I mean, almost everything uh, that, that you see as a GP has got a psychological element. I mean, even if you just think about the common cold, when are you most likely to come down with the common cold when you're really stressed and run down? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thanks for sharing all that. I mean, it seems like a common theme in the, this, like the human story that a lot of people's deep sense of meaning in life comes after those periods of suffering when you feel like you lost it and forces you into new spaces internally and externally. Yeah, it really does. Doesn't it? it, it you know, I, I wonder, I don't, I don't know that I've ever met some a person that's never gone through real difficulty or suffering in their life. Uh, I don't know if they really exist, but if they do exist, I can't imagine that they would really be very understanding of what it's like for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I doubt they'd make a good therapist. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think, you know, one of the, not that I would wish upon anybody to go through that suffering, but one of the benefits is that we can learn and grow from it and develop more insight into what other people go through uh, so that we can develop um, have more empathy and compassion for them. Hmm. Do you remember when you were sort of at that peak suffering and then started to get interested in psychology more and in therapy do you remember what some of those ideas or books were that inspired you or made you think in new ways? Yeah, well, it's it's funny because the first self-help book I, I read was by mistake. Um, so what I, 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 to try to cheer myself out of my uh, uh, depression, I was reading lots of comedy books. And uh, so, uh, you know, my favorite comedy troupe of all time is Monty Python. And so uh, anything that was written by any member of Monty Python, I would just instantly buy and read. And uh, I I saw that there was a a book in the bookstore that was John Cleese and Robin Skinner. Um, And uh, I bought this book and it was actually, I thought it was going to be a comedy book, but it was actually, um, uh, I I didn't bother to read the blurb on the back, which is amazing. Uh, I'm I'm very lucky probably because I I probably wouldn't have picked it up, but it was actually a series of conversations of John Cleese with his psychiatrist, Robin Skinner. And John Cleese was talking about all his issues of depression and anxiety. And as I read this book, I was like, Oh wow. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I get that. Oh, Oh, my family was like that. Oh, that happened to me. And, uh, and it, it really kind of opened my eyes uh, to a lot of the stuff that I had been struggling with. I I can't actually, I think it's called families and how to survive them. Um, and, uh, it was really, it was from a psychodynamic uh, perspective, how your family influences you and the effects it has on you. Um, uh, and so, you know, that just opened my mind to the world of self-help books of like, wow, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I think the, um, the book I read after that, which was also brilliant was, um, uh, the road less traveled by M Scott Peck. 
that book hooked me from the first line. The first line of that book is life is difficult. And I was like, Oh, this is a book for me. You know, cause it just, just that instant acknowledgement. This is how it is. Life is difficult. Yes. Yes. You understand me. Almost in the same way when you hear the first, the first line of a song. Very much. Yeah. The impact of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and then other books, I guess, um, are the, I pretty uh, quickly latched onto CBT, traditional CBT and, uh, the, uh, the book by David Burns called feeling good, um, which I thought was very good. And that, uh, that, that intrigued me to go and attend my first uh, training in CBT after reading that book. Hmm. And, and how did you get from a more traditional CBT approach to what, something more uh, act focused, or maybe it wasn't act at the time or mindfulness based, but how'd you get over there? Yeah, well, uh, very gradually. <laughs> uh, so I had a, I liked a lot of CBT, but I, I felt there were some things missing from it. And there were some things from it that I didn't particularly like. Uh, most obviously the uh, disputing and challenging of your thoughts, which never really was very much help to me. Um, uh, but there were lots of other things in CBT that I really did like, uh, particularly all the behavioral experiments and the behavioral activation stuff and just the becoming aware of your thoughts without actually challenging them. I found very helpful, which is what the research shows, you know, clinical improvement in traditional CBT happens way before you get to disputing thoughts. It's the awareness mm-hmm. of them and being able to notice them and name them that, uh, uh, you know, um, they call cognitive distancing, and, uh, of course, I'm not sure if Steve talked about this, that ACT was originally called comprehensive distancing because he just pushed that mm-hmm. process a lot further. So comprehensive distancing is not as exciting a name as ACT. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, so I, there was a lot in CBT that I liked, but not all of it, and I felt there were things missing. And I uh, was also reading uh, Viktor Frankl's works um, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly uh, his most famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, is a book I've read many times. Uh, and I liked his uh, emphasis on meaning and purpose and you know, Frankl never used the word values, but in retrospect, you know, that's what he's talking about all the way through Matt's search for meaning, how uh, your, your values give your life meaning. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was also becoming increasingly interested in mindfulness and the work of uh, John Kabat-Zinn and uh, another great book, Full Catastrophe Living, um, what a superb title. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I was trying to kind of mix this kind of Frankl's logotherapy meaning and purpose stuff and Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness stuff and traditional CBT and trying to get them all to fit together. Uh, And then a mate said, oh, check out this um, acceptance and commitment therapy stuff. And uh, I'd never heard of it before. We're talking 2004 or 2003. Uh, I went to the bookstore. There was only one book on it at the time. I bought that book and I stayed up all night reading it. It was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the 1999 textbook on, on ACT. I couldn't put it down. I finally oh, yeah. finished it at about five in the morning, you know, and it was like, it was a hallelujah moment, you know, like the, the, the clouds opened, the sunlight was shining down. There were angels flying through the air, you know, maybe I've been smoking a bit too much dope or something, but it was, uh, you know, uh, 
it was very much um you know uh, uh it was a hallelujah moment it's like wow you know uh, these guys, Steve Hayes, Kirk Strezel, Kelly Wilson, the co-authors, they, they have, uh, they've put it all together. This is, this is what I want to do. And so within three months, I was on a plane flying to America to my first act conference to meet these guys. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. So that first conference you went to, who, who ran it? What was that like? Uh, that was... Uh, that was so that was it. that was in Reno, which is where Steve Hayes lives, and it was a small conference. I think it was about a hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty people. Uh, the Reno Summer Institute, and it was amazing because you know Steve actually invited everyone at the conference back to his house for a barbecue. That was like <laughs> astonishing. Uh, uh, I was just blown away by the the warmth of the community and the openness of the leaders, you know, how, how Steve was quite willing to talk about his anxiety and Kelly Wilson was absolutely open about his problems with depression. And I, I'd never heard people, uh, you know, uh, I'd been to numerous trainings by then. I'd never heard people talk so openly and willingly about their own personal struggles. And I was like, wow, okay, you guys know what it's like, you know, um, it's, uh, it was, it was just so inspiring. Yeah. And how long was it from, from that time to when you wrote your first book? Uh, well, so, okay. So that, that was 2004. Um, and so it was at that conference that I asked Steve, um, do you mind if I write a book about this? <laughs> and he said, sure. So I went away and started writing the book. Um, and I was about halfway through writing it in 2005 when Steve announced that he was writing his self-help book, uh, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And so I kind of thought, oh, there's no point in writing another one. And I just put mine on hold um, and mm-hmm. thought, oh, well, write something else. Um, but then when Steve's book came out, um, I thought, oh, actually, mine's so different to this. Uh, there's room for, for more than one book. <laughs> uh, and so uh, so I, I started writing it again. Um, and uh, the I guess I finished writing it around about mid-2006, and then it eventually um, came out in 2007. Uh, and it was very hard to get it published. It got rejected by every single publisher in Australia. Um, and then this tiny little publishing house in New Zealand uh, uh, called Exile uh, Publishing, they they ran with it, and uh, it's, it's been their, their most successful book. So um, good on them. Uh it's, I never would have dreamed then that it would, uh, go on to, <laughs> I'm just looking at the cover of the new edition here. That's just come out and it's got, you know, kind of a big, uh, this is million copy bestseller. And I, I, every time I see that, I'm like, I, I really find it hard to believe. It's like, what, how, how did this, how did this get out there to so many people? It's, it's kind of surreal. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, well, it's an amazing book, and it really is such an accessible way for anybody to learn a lot and make some serious changes in the way they 
see themselves in the world and make change. Well, it's funny how um, how self-critical you get. Like uh, when I was writing this second edition, I was just there was so many uh, bits and pieces that I was uh, cringing about. Uh, you know, it's like, oh my god, did you really write that? Oh, that's so bad. Oh, that's so clunky. And um, you know, I, I was expecting it would just be a quick rewrite job. I'd just tweak a few things. But when I went through it, it was like, oh my god, this is terrible. Oh, you know. <laughs> so it, it ended up being a huge rewrite. And like the new edition uh, has, a, and it's it's over fifty percent new material. It's um, it's a very wow. So uh, it's a. I guess I I hadn't realised how over fourteen years my the way that I think about and write about and communicate this stuff has just changed so much, which I guess is a good thing, really. Um, but yeah, uh, it turned out to yeah. be a, <laughs> a bigger job than I thought. Are there are what were some of the biggest differences in your thinking or perspective over the course of those years when you wrote the next the second edition? Well, I think the the most obvious change is uh, is the the central emphasis on self compassion. So, uh, like self compassion is kind of infused throughout the first edition of the book, but it's kind of hovering in the background. It's not on center stage. Whereas with this book, it's really with this second edition, it's really uh, center stage. It's in the spotlights. Uh, there's uh, lots and lots of exercises designed explicitly to develop self-compassion and lots of stuff about overcoming the common barriers to it. Uh, so self-compassion has always been a part of the app model, but it, it probably didn't come into center stage until about 2005. 2005 was when John Forsyth and George Eifert uh, sort of um, – wrote a textbook called Act for Anxiety Disorders, which self-compassion was a central part of that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I was quite surprised uh, at how it was. It was kind of there, but it was so subtle and so implicit. And I don't think the word, I don't think the word self-compassion actually existed in the whole book. It was like, wow, <laughs> a, mm. this is, this is major so that uh, that's certainly one of the biggest changes, a massive amount of stuff on that. Hmm. Speaking of, I love that uh, conversation you had with Dennis Tersh, who is also on the podcast. He, that was that you guys had a really nice conversation oh, together yeah, that yeah. I found on YouTube. Yeah, Dennis's stuff is fantastic, and uh, he, he's a, another person who's obviously played a big role in getting uh, self compassion into act. Um, so, uh, yeah. Cool. What, what interests you most now? I know it's probably a lot of your attention and time has gone towards this rewrite. And you, I know you're doing the audio book for it. That probably took a lot, a lot of your energy and uh, time. Like, But what, what interests you most now looking forward in the field? Like any new topics or ideas you want to branch into? Yeah, well, so my, my passion at the moment, I, I've got a, a new textbook coming out uh, in December called Trauma Focused Act. And mm -hmm. I think this is very exciting uh, because it, it really 
there's been a long uh, a long history of trying to build bridges between uh, act and uh, other models of trauma therapy and i think that um what i'm calling trauma focused act uh really does that to a, a whole new level uh, kind of integrating act with attachment theory uh, inhibitory learning theory polyvagal theory and uh, it, it draws very heavily upon my uh, experience with the world health organization um back in 2015 uh, who asked me to write a protocol for using act in refugee camps uh and so with the help of many other people uh i i wrote this protocol which they've been rolling out in refugee camps around the world um, to, um most notably in uganda turkey and syria and some of these refugee camps there's hundreds of thousands of people living in tents or huts and they're, they're very stark dire places to live um and of course most of those people are suffering from trauma anyway uh and so the the who was asking you know can a brief intervention make a difference to people psychological health in these really difficult circumstances uh you know most people would assume no you know it's life so bleak there <laughs> how can you really help but the who was like well maybe if we give people some some skills they'll cope better um and so this is a 10 hour protocol uh two hours a week delivered in a group format entirely delivered by audio recordings which the group listen to and they have a facilitator who's like a local health professional like a nurse or somebody like that who who does five days of training to kind of facilitate the program and uh they uh so it's two hours a week for five weeks and they finally published their research on this in the lancet uh, last year and the results were pretty amazing just from a 10-hour intervention uh the study they did was with um south sudanese female refugees in a ugandan refugee camp uh, almost all of them with significant ptsd and depression uh most of them with a history of sexual or domestic violence and uh just from 10 hours of act there were significant reductions in uh, PTSD wow. and depression so that was like <laughs> that was just mind blowing that that uh, a little bit of act can actually i, I guess when you think about it it kind of makes sense it's like well you know this uh learning to this isn't going to turn my life into something wonderful but it is going to learn me to uh, help me to to learn to cope with the challenges i face on a daily basis Mm, that's amazing that's really cool work yeah well the the, the values uh, piece was um was so important you know we asked them who do you look up to or admire in the camp and what are the qualities of that person and how does that person treat other people in the camp do you see any of those qualities in yourself and if so how can you uh you know put them into play and we kind of look like you know all day long in the camp there are choices the you can't just leave the camp that's not an option but there are things you can do that make a difference like you share a tent with other people so you can be withdrawn and cold and distant and hide in the corner or you can be hostile and aggressive or you can be something else to to the other people in your tent you can be uh, understanding loving caring supportive and what you do in that tent with those other people will determine 
the quality of your life in that tent. And when you come out of your tent, there's people in the tent opposite you. Uh, and again, you can be friendly and warm or cold and withdrawn or hostile and aggressive. And there's all sorts of community activities, uh, praying and singing and playing football and so forth. And you can join in or isolate yourself. So it, it really does empower people that even in this awful situation, I have choices all day long. Um, and what was actually really nice was that um, there, there was quite a lot of uh, rivalry in these camps between different ethnic groups. Um, and uh, that kind of uh, wasn't published in the, in the research, but a, a nice qualitative finding was that massively reduced when people participated in these programs. They started to develop mm -hmm. empathy and compassion for you know, a, a different religious or cultural group. Uh, you know, one woman reported that for the first time she'd started talking to the people who lived in the tent next door to her, you know, uh, so mm. that was so cool. Yeah. That's amazing. That must've been really meaningful work to do for you. Uh, yeah, it was very, uh, it was incredibly nerve wracking. Uh, I was, because I, I, I do tend to be a bit of a pessimist and I was like, how is this going to help? And if this doesn't help, am I going to be the laughing stock, you know, and, uh, but, you know, but yeah, the kind of optimist kind of trumped through, like, well, we'll give it a go. Let's see what happens. You know, the, another challenge in writing that was, um, the, the who were very clear that, it couldn't, uh, that they didn't want mindfulness meditation. They didn't want anything that resembled meditation because to so many cultures, meditation is a religious practice uh, from, a, from a different religion and it's something a bit threatening or that they don't like. Uh, so I was also very aware that we needed to do trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Uh, you know, uh, there's... If you do formal mindfulness meditation when you're suffering from trauma, in other words, you know, if you sit still, close your eyes, go internally, there's a very high risk you're going to have a, a negative reaction, flashbacks yeah. or, uh, you know, dissociative states or, you know, just becoming overwhelmed by painful memories. So uh, yeah. we were, you know, um, very aware of that. And so um, the model uses... Uh, a mindfulness practice that uh, I'm probably best known for, which I, I call dropping ganker. It's a very physical way of acknowledging your thoughts and feelings, moving your body, engaging in the world. Uh, so it's, it's ideal for anyone suffering from trauma because you're not going internally, you're engaging with the outside world. You're not sitting still, you're physically moving and you're not getting lost in your thoughts and feelings. You're acknowledging them while being grounded in, in the present moment. So, um, uh, that was a, a kind of practice that we introduced 20 minutes into the first session and then just built and built and made it longer and longer, uh, throughout the, the program. Wow. Yeah. One of, one of the most important, uh, learning experiences of my career as a clinician so far. I was taking your act for trauma training last year. Oh. Uh, it was so great. I learned so much in that that I use all the time in my sessions with clients. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Well, I've changed yeah. the name of that you're, course you're now. Called it, <laughs> I've called it trauma focused act to, uh, 
Because I, I think uh, it, it I, you know, I think it is important if you, if you look at traditional um, many of the books and chapters and articles on ACT for Trauma, they they're very heavily based on ACT as it was back in the 90s. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's so important. Uh, the field of trauma has just changed so much in the last two decades, uh, uh, most obviously with uh, the predominance of polyvagal theory and the recognition of just how much of a, an impact um, the, the vagus nerve has and our kind of... Uh, our, uh, the, how the dorsal vagus nerve creates these kind of uh, freeze responses and these shutdown responses and how we have to learn to deal with that effectively. Um, so, and I guess every clinician is really, you know, dealing with trauma. I mean, you, you often often don't realize it because it often presents as addiction or depression or relationship issues or sexual problems or numerous other issues. I mean, I don't know about you, but my experience is that a a clear-cut diagnosis of PTSD is quite a rare presentation of trauma in clinical practice. Yeah, agreed. You know, I was interested when you were talking about like this conversation we're having on trauma, but then also talking about earlier in the conversation, how much suffering is often an important catalyst for growth and change and and growing into living by our values. How do you, I don't know if it's reconcile it or just like think about that dynamic of how you know, we wouldn't want to impose suffering on anybody, but we also know that it's such an important ingredient for life and, and growth. So how do you think about that? <laughs> if, I, if I could grow without suffering, I'd take that option every single time, you know. So yeah. uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I the term that I've heard used, uh, that, uh, which I think is a very good term, is toxic positivity, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah, this terrible thing that happened to you, it's a gift. You can grow from this, you know. Yeah, and, and you uh, sometimes come across these motivational speakers that are like, yeah, this was getting my legs blown off was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, look, you know, some of those people may be genuine, um, but I, I suspect that the majority of them are not. You know, it's like the the difficult stuff that's happened to me in my life was really shit and really difficult. And I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, you know, um, being able to learn and grow from it is fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, cause, um, it makes your life better rather than worse if you can learn and grow from it. But if I could have that way of learning and growing without having to go through all that difficult stuff, I'd much prefer that. And, uh, you know, mm. uh, so, uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I, I think we do. I mean, it's a good question because I think as, as therapists um, uh, and coaches and counselors and so forth, we have to be very careful about, obviously, we do recognize that this suffering does potentially provide uh, an opportunity for, for growth and for development and learning new skills. But we have to be so careful how we talk around that because it is easy to come across as dismissive and invalidating, yeah. you know, this is a gift, you know, well, you know, maybe years later you might come to see it as a gift, but um, certainly in the acute phase, highly unlikely. 
Totally couldn't agree more. And I would imagine, I would imagine I don't have children, but I would imagine that as a parent, that that's a really, that must be a tough thing to navigate where you have a lot of agency and the level of, um, like difficulty that a child experiences. I bet uh, knowing that there's, that there's, um, utility in difficulty, but also like not wanting to, you know, no one would want to in the short term, put their child through difficulty. So I imagine that's hard as a parent. Yeah. Look, it is hard as a parent. And it's, um, I think, uh, it's, it's getting harder because, you know, like the previous generation of parents, uh, was like, ah, you know, just let your kids get on with it. Whereas our generation is like, uh, you know, you've got to look after your kids. You've got to protect your kids. You've got to keep them safe. And and I, I think there's a, a danger that uh, our generation of parents is just being overly protective. I wonder how much that's played a role in increasing anxiety and depression uh, that we're seeing in, in teenagers today and children today. Uh, again, you know, if you if if you're overly protective, you do prevent those opportunities for learning and growth and uh, as we know exposure is the most effective intervention in the whole of psychology putting yourself in contact with difficult stuff and and learning to respond flexibly to it so if we're really always out protecting our kids all the time we're going to deprive them of those opportunities it's so hard mm. to, that and there is no perfect balance um uh, mm. Yeah, that's where it seems like there's a there's creative ways where you can have those opportunities, but in more contained systems. Like I see, like martial arts and sports often play an important role in having a a container for difficulty, but in a more you know secure way. Yeah. Well, it's like, my, you know, my son's 15 and he's he's whizzing around on an electric skateboard that uh, goes up to 50 kilometers per hour. And, you know, I really struggled with that on, on the on the like, you know, that's that, that's a vehicle. Uh, somehow Australian laws have not uh, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but there's there's no laws on electric skateboards. Yeah. Uh, so he's on main roads. Uh, he's got all his protective gear on and all that stuff. But still, you know, 50K is on a – and I guess uh, it, it's it's quite scary. But, I, you know, I just thought, well, look, you know, that's what you want to do. And uh, I would not never do that in a million years. I'd be terrified to do it. Uh, so just, um, again, I required a lot of act on myself. Am I willing to make room for my anxiety and actually just in the service of allowing him to explore the world and be adventurous, you know, I'd far rather be electric skateboarding than taking drugs, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, God bless my parents. It must've been hard for them, but I, for many times would go off on these really long bike rides, go through like, you know, hundreds of miles riding on the most dangerous, like not the most dangerous, but on really busy roads and camping out places. And that must've been, <laughs> that must've been really stressful for my parents, not knowing where I was yeah. and on the road. But those were some of the most important experiences I had where yeah. I, you know, yeah. learned a lot. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, uh, 
I think, um, I, you know, I think also because of, of social media and the the, the, the the internet and so forth, uh, this generation of parents is just so much more uh, bombarded by horror stories about what can happen to your kids. And uh, I, I don't think there's any evidence that, uh, you know, sexual abuse has increased over the years, but our awareness of it and our fear mm. of it has just, you know, um, exploded. So all of that stuff plays on your mind. Yeah, there is a real asymmetry with a lot of things now with how we feel like the danger of things when objectively we know it's actually things are better or safer than they ever been. But our exposure to it really does something to us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So I got a loaded question for you that, you know, we can take where you want. But if you were, you know, I'm going to give you a classic magic wand question, but do you have if I had a magic wand, would you have a sense of things you would really like to see change? We'll limit it to just like how maybe ACT could be integrated into certain systems like in education or in mental health systems or in other ways. Yeah. Uh, I would love to see kids learning this at school, you know, learning it from age five. Uh, it would be so uh useful because kids are just so bombarded by these messages think positive feel good don't worry be happy uh, that would be fantastic <laughs> it's uh i remember um when my son was about seven i think it was uh the school he was at the had mistress, um, you know, sent out a newsletter to uh, all the parents and saying, uh, you know, um, the uh, our our, uh, our motto for the year fours this year is Akuna Matata. Uh, have have no worries. Um, I, I like uh, I so I called her up and I said, you know, wouldn't it be better if we kind of had a taught them that everybody has worries and that worries normal and that your parents and your teachers have worries and taught them some practical skills rather than you know telling them they have no worries and she uh, she didn't like that so and then you sent her a copy of the happiness trap <laughs> i actually did yeah <laughs> I, I suspect she didn't read it uh, so yeah, I'd love to see it getting into into schools. It's great. And, you know, it's because it's, it's so hard because our conditioning shows up when we're raising our kids. Like, uh, again, um, my son, it was probably about the same age, maybe a little bit older. He, I remember, he, he didn't want to go upstairs because it was dark upstairs. And he was like, oh, there's monsters. And, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember what type of monster it was, but he He'd been playing this game Five Nights at Freddy's, which has got these kind of killer robots in it or something. And he's like, oh, I don't want to go scared. I don't want to go scared. You know? And um, yeah, so he must have been about nine. And, and the voice in my head said, don't be silly. There's nothing to be afraid of. And that was my conditioning showing up. But luckily I heard that voice in my head and I didn't yeah. say it out aloud. And what I said instead mm -hmm. was, when I was your age, I was scared of going upstairs too. It's like, it's scary when you go up in the dark, you know, like most people are scared of the dark, but 
here's the cool thing. You can be afraid and still do things that you need to do. Where are you mm. feeling that in your body? What's it like? Well, this is called fear or anxiety, you know, and notice how you can have that and still move your arms and legs, you know, and so I kind of coached him through it. And uh, I, I can't claim that I always heard that voice in my head, but uh, uh, at least uh, on some occasions I heard it and was able to do something different. And, uh, you know, uh, so I, I think as parents, um, I, I'd be great for parents to get onto this, great for schools to get on this, and, yeah, definitely health services. I mean, I, I can't imagine any form of health service that would not be improved by, uh, uh, you know, bringing uh, ACT into it. Um, and, uh, and workplaces and sports, business, I mean, it, every area of life, let's put it everywhere, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, there are, there's so many uh, opportunities for this to be spread into different institutions and systems where it could really make a big impact in yeah. education, I think is such a big one. We get so, from such a young age, like you said, so many mixed messages and lack of actually useful skills to navigate our own experience. And uh, yeah, I think that's spot on. Do you have any bucket list items and things you'd like to research or write about or make an impact on? Well, I'm working on a couple of novels. <laughs> um, oh. So I'm, uh, I'm taking a, a break from writing at books uh, for at least a couple of years while I, uh, the, the one I'm, uh, well, I don't know whether to describe it as writing or struggling or <laughs> struggling, <laughs> struggling with is probably a better way of describing a typical writing session um, on a, uh, on a, uh, an apocalyptic thriller. So, there we oh. go. Yeah. Um, much, much harder than writing about act, I have to say. Although there are some actish themes sneaking in there. Oh, that's so cool. Have you ever written fic fiction before? Like, is this a new endeavor for you? Or? I, I have written, I, I wrote one novel, but it was a big flop. Um, oh. It was, uh, it only came out in Australia and uh, it was a, it was a sex comedy. Um drawing on a for a while there um before i kind of changed careers uh, as well as working as a gp i also worked in a sex clinic uh, as a doctor um and uh <laughs> <laughs> disclaimer i'm gonna you're like don't edit that part out <laughs> um, and uh you know there, there were there were kind of uh there's a lot of um uh, you know, obviously a lot of, uh, uh, you know, real difficult problems that you encounter there, but also uh, you can probably imagine a lot of um, humorous material uh, from people's stories. So I kind of uh, um, funneled a lot of that into this uh, this wacky sex comedy book, which was a big flop. And um, mm. I ended up buying uh, all the uh, leftover unsold copies and flog it, flogging them at my workshops for many years until I got rid of all the leftover stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so um, yes, so this is uh, the second, second attempt, but um, uh, a very different genre. Well, I mean, that says something about you to um, return back to 
this this type of endeavor after it the first one not going like you planned and you've had all the success with writing stuff on act it would be really easy to just not return back and have to confront probably brings up a lot of stuff for you having to return back to this <laughs> well it does it does but you know it's like um actually every book is just uh, there's a, a lot of anxiety with you know even you might think with all that success that you, you that anxiety would disappear, but it doesn't. With every book, the same thoughts show up. Well, this is rubbish. You, you know, this is really boring. You know, people are not going to like this, and um, you know, uh, wasting your time. It could be doing other things. And blah 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 yeah. blah. But I, I, you know, I've just learned to expect that's what's going to happen. Um, I actually have um, a little Word document, which is full of all the most critical things that my mind says to me while I'm writing. Uh, And so I just kind of um, boot that up if it's a really bad day and kind of say, oh, yeah, I've got that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. Anything new to add to the list? And there, Mm -hmm. there isn't usually. It's just the same old stuff. But just running through the list and seeing that this is all the same old stuff <laughs> my mind's been telling me for 15 years uh, really helps me to unhook from it, you know. Uh, yes. Yeah, you sort of get out in front of it and, and invite them in for tea. You're like, oh, here you are. Yeah. yeah. I once yeah. had a, a client who was an artist, a painter, and she had the same issues. So uh, I suggested to her that she had two canvases going one canvas uh, just paint all her negative thoughts and on the other canvas do the painting and if uh, any of her thoughts were kind of pulling her out of the painting moved back to the first canvas and just write them up there in paint um, and and come forth and she found that so useful um, I'm hoping one day wow. I'll see an exhibition you know of really good paintings with canvases full of <laughs> negative self-talk you know Oh, wow. That's a really cool exercise, a diffusion exercise. I love it. Well, it's great because um, you still carry on painting, you know. Yeah. It's just like if you're writing, you still carry on writing. You're still writing. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of time here. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. This was great getting to talk to you. I could do this for hours more. <laughs> and I just I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you. It's. Um, will you be going to the, the San Francisco conference? I'm not sure yet, but I would really like to. Are you? I'm thinking about it. So um, if uh, if I'm there, it'd be good to catch up over a beer. Yeah, yeah, I'd love I'd love that. So that's that makes it much more uh, motivating to go beer with <laughs> Russ Harris. Check off my uh, dream list. You know? uh, um, but anyway, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on the show. That was um, that was a lot of. Uh, pleasure and uh you're uh, you know you make it very uh, easy to chat very easy to talk good at creating that space so keep on uh, keep up uh, the good work it's got me out of my mind it's got me seeing trees breathe it's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me it's got me feeling the love that i bottled so deep when the entire Feeding all my greed Yes, I know 
castle Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul 